This is the Work Minus Podcast, where we talk about what we need to drop from how we work today and transformative ideas to help you build a better workplace. To hear all of our episodes and read articles about how you can improve your workplace, go to workminus.com. Welcome back to Work Minus. Today, our guests are Ed and Peter Shine. They are the co-founders of the Organizational Culture and Leadership Institute. They have a great history to share with us, and this episode is Work Minus Command and Control. Hi, guys. How are you today? We are great. Thanks for having us. Oh, so excited. You guys, I want to have you both introduce yourself a little bit. Ed, let's start with you because you've come with a, a lot of experience to this topic of organizational culture. If people don't know you, they should, but go ahead and give just a little bit of introduction about yourself. Well, I'm basically a social psychologist. I got my PhD at Harvard, which mixed sociology, anthropology, and psychology, which is important in thinking about this topic. Uh, I worked there for 50 plus years in the School of Management. And so my insights into this come partly from teaching, partly from research, but mostly from consulting and seeing what actually goes on in the world of command and control and not liking a lot of what I see and having a mentor, Douglas McGregor, who talked way back then about Theory Why, which is a a better and newer way of thinking about the relationship between a superior and a subordinate and among the team members. So my deep interest in this is in that relationship, and we'll talk more about that. And then Peter, tell us how you got started in your career. So my career started uh, in Silicon Valley, really, in the early 90s. I did a few years in in strategy consulting and then came out to uh, work at Apple and then a few startups and then spent uh, quite a few years at Sun Microsystems in corporate development. And, um, you know, I think that there's a lot of things that, that happen in startups in Silicon Valley that um, is so organic and disruptive that it's sort of hard to to put your finger on anything that that uh, seems wrong or right. It's just it's can be so crazy that um, it, I wouldn't say that I, I was seeing things that necessarily I thought um, was was you know managing things the wrong way in Silicon Valley. I think what Ed and I see that that concerns us more is when organizations get larger and some of the bureaucratic norms end up being, um, if not constricting, they, uh, or I was going to say, if not destructive, they're certainly constricting. And so I think that's more what, what we both saw. And then so three years ago, we got together and formed the Organizational Culture and Leadership Institute um, so that we could do some consulting, some coaching, and some writing about some of these things that we think are going on. The other thing that I would mention is that our book, Humble Leadership, is very much in a zeitgeist. It's another sort of thread in a, in a, a, a tapestry that's being woven where a new sort of spirit of humanism is uh, is is really coming up in a lot of a little, from a lot of different voices. So people who've read Brene Brown, or maybe have read Stanley McChrystal's Team of Teams, or have read Frederick Laloux's Reinventing Organizations. Um, th- there's 
we're not the only voice in this zeitgeist. There's a lot of people who are talking about this. We saw it, we heard it, we felt it, and we wanted to get together and write more about it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk about this idea of command and control. When you think about it, especially large organizations, that's immediately what you think of when you, someone's a manager, they're supposed to be commanding things, controlling what's going on. I, I think in general that that idea has fallen out of favor, but in practice it's still going on in a lot of ways. Why are organizations still latching onto that or are managers themselves? Well, because <clears throat> command and control are intrinsic concepts in any kind of work situation. There has to be some, some hierarchy, some system of allocating work, and there has to be some system of deciding, are we accomplishing our goals? So we can't get rid of command and control. What we have to get rid of is the way in which in post-World War II machine bureaucracy based on role relations rather than personal relations. If you think of command and control between roles, you get all this pathology of the boss thinking that, that he or she is totally accountable and therefore they have to manage everything. Uh, that is a product of defining everything in bureaucratic role terms, which I think of as the old culture of management. What is new in the McChrystals and in the team-based and in the new forms of organization is that there is still command, but command is distributed among people who know each other. And similarly, control is distributed among people who have gotten to know each other. So that what's really new is the way in which we think about who's in charge and who should be measuring what, always based on a more personal relationship between the people in the hierarchy. Hierarchy won't go away, but the bosses I've known in over my history who are really great bosses will tell you, I really got to know my people. Hmm. Once we got to know each other, this command and control stuff didn't matter much. We just automatically sorted it out. It's the getting to know each other the, the level two relationship, getting past role-related bureaucracy that is the key to our and many other people's new ideas. I want to follow up on this question about who's in charge, um, because that that's sometimes should be easy to define, right? Whoever's like has the, the biggest title seems to be in charge. But when you talk about things like accountability and control and command, what, what is the, the real factor to say who's in charge? How do you define that? Well, I can give you a quick case in our book. Uh, one of my colleagues out here in my retirement home was the, the leader of the Poseidon missile program of building a, a nuclear warhead that can be shot off a submarine. And he tells in great detail how 150 people with him as in charge collectively felt accountable for making this thing work over a, an R&D period that lasted four or five years, many false steps. But he said the key was that every engineer, every one of these felt accountable. How did that happen? 
because the bosses above him wanted it that way, and his own approach to the various teams and subunits was to pass that accountability down to them. And he says it worked. You know, nobody copped out. They all felt accountable. One of the things we talk a lot about in the Humble Leadership book is how um, important trust is. That you, you could make the argument that if you really establish strong mutual trust, accountability is taken for granted. You don't need accountability to be a tool or a, a um, an attribute of command and control. It's accountability is trust. In the same way that if you are truly open in sharing information um, that moves the ball forward, that, that gets people to make better decisions in your teams or your groups, you don't need to have you know the, the thing that everybody calls transparency these days. Transparency is when you don't trust the other side or the other members of your team or your peers. The other thing that I think came out of the uh, the some of the ideas of of um, the, the sort of in the machine age of, of organizations coming out of the Frederick Taylor kind of models of efficiency is that um, you ended up building a system where you have um, work lanes. And effectively, you have middle managers competing with them, with each other, staying in their lanes, but competing with each other and hiding the ball, um, you know, concealing information, um, not sharing pertinent details that would help the other manager. And um, it was a way of sort of competing uh, um, up the corporate ladder. But we just think that that, uh, again, that is a very constrictive model of progress for, for organizations that are trying to grow mm -hmm. um, at its best. And at its worst, it's genuinely entropic and destructive to have, um, you know, concealing information be the way to succeed rather than sharing information. Yeah. You've mentioned your book a few times, Humble Leadership. Uh, tell us more about that topic, why the title, and then there's a lot of different types of leadership books out there. Uh, why is humility something you wanted to focus on? Well, in, in various writings about this, it's very important that we describe what we mean by here and now humility, rather than some vague general notion of humility being as less good or less smart or something than other people. What we are talking about as here and now humility is in the safety field called situational awareness. The, the leader of today is aware that the problems he or she is trying to solve are way beyond his or her individual information capacity to make the decision. The humility is I recognize that I'm dependent on my team, sometimes my boss, sometimes my subordinates, and that I need to build relationships that will get them to tell me the truth so that when we make a decision, it will be based on actual information rather than my subordinates telling me what they think I want to hear. 
I have to be humble in respect to them in that they know stuff that I need to know. So humility is a relational concept in our view. It's not a, a personality trait. And it's, it's, a, it's a situational concept of the leader shouldn't be making decisions if they have insufficient information. They should build a relationship that will elicit that information. That requires humility and making oneself vulnerable. And it's the only way to deal with complex problems. But there, and just a related way to frame this, too, is that in the sort of command and control model, um, if you're in a leadership position, you um, can uh, ask questions and elicit answers of your people, right? That's, the, that's sort of the model. That's what the command and control means. What we're suggesting is that the questions you don't ask um, are maybe far more important than the ones that you do. In other words, you want um, your people uh, to be sharing information at the level that they're answering questions you don't ask, because it's the things that don't that you don't know, or the constructs that you that you're 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 not um, framing and interrogating that may be far more important. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So one, one topic we come to quite a bit as we talk about work minus, uh, we talk about the, the use of computers, use of technology to come into things. And we've even discussed how management is even being influenced by software. Do you feel like a computer is by nature a humble system or is it more arrogant? <laughs> um, well, well let, let me intervene here before we answer the computer question on the, on the minus part. The thing that really has to go is the idea of professional and social distance mm, yeah. between the boss and the subordinate and between team members. We haven't mentioned that, but that's crucial. In the old system, in the old culture of, uh, of management, distance was required between the roles to make the machine work. You didn't want nepotism, you didn't want all kinds of relationships because that interfered with the perfect machine model. When complexity intervenes and tasks are now uh, far more organic, the distance between people has to decrease in order to build the trust and the information. And so the question then of where does the computer and the network and all that fit in becomes an interesting question so long as we accept the fact that the goal of the communication system has to be to reduce distance rather to, than to maintain it. And I guess, um, you know, I would add this, this sort of framing of, of arrogant versus humility. I'm not sure that's really how we see this. I think our, our view would be that there are certain kinds of, um, you know, work endeavors that require a level of adaptiveness and, and as Ed mentioned, sort of situational awareness that we don't think even the best AI is really capable of. 
because it's interactive and it's social. Um, so in certain contexts where what we're trying to do is process information really quickly and um, uh, make some decisions or transactions or handoffs, I don't see any reason why we shouldn't expect that, that AI is going to perform that more efficiently than, than human beings. I think there's plenty of data su to suggest that. Where we don't really see AI taking over is in that sort of spontaneous effectiveness, which is where creativity and innovation come from. So it's the, does the, does the computer know to, um, you know, peek, peek into somebody's office or tap somebody on the shoulder and have a spontaneous conversation um, where you know, information and a new idea forms? That's where we're just not sure that, that we need to worry too much about AI. Sure. AI is going to be very good at replacing transactional role-based work. But that's not where we're all going in the future. We're all creating and innovating. And so, you know, we need to harness the, the power of big data to feed us information. But that contextual processing is something that I think humans are better at and will be for a while. And that's why reducing that professional distance maybe is even more important now as humans lean in more towards those very interhuman roles, creating that spontaneous effectiveness to be able to know that person. Would you agree with that? That, that, that that's why professional distance is so important. That is, yeah, that is exactly how we see it. But Ed, you were going to. Well, I was going to say the dilemma of, of the internet is how we reduce that distance when we are not always co-located. Yes. So one of the most interesting questions for future research will be, I think people will need to be close to each other and know each other, but how they will accomplish that on the internet will be something that, that is right now evolving by seeing how the new generations of, of kids are doing this. How do they know if they haven't got daily face-to-face -face contact, whether they can trust each other on their internet messages? To me, those are crucial questions for the future because trust and knowledge are gonna be crucial, but how do you maintain them when you don't see each other every day will be a big question. Absolutely. We, we talk a lot about how, you, you know, that these things are complementary. The idea of um, a meal or a drink after work or, um, you know, a, a lunchtime, you know, walk around the, the neighborhood. Those things are very powerful in developing just that, that intrinsic human um, trust or as we, as we described in the book, a level two relationship. Um, those are, are never going to be replaced by even the best variants of, um, uh, you know, telepresence or however you want to describe what we're capable to do of doing with um, video and, and groupware uh, over, you know, over high speed networks. Um, so, you know, it, it's it's critical to keep those two things sort of in, in balance, you know, the mix of local contemporaneous versus um, distant but highly efficient.
One thing, though, that I just want to add that's sort of a new angle on this is the, um, you know, the WeWorks and the different um, uh, sort of shared workspaces. It's becoming a very important um, part of our kind of physical environment and work these days. And one of the things that's very interesting about those is that it, it becomes a, a sort of a social context where it's not in intra-company, it's inter-company. Right. Yeah. So the relationships developing um, in these sort of spontaneous ecosystems between companies may be as important uh, as the relationships that are forming within teams and within work groups. Uh, it's a very promising and fascinating and interesting thing to see develop. Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, let, let's close out with a question about what if somebody comes into a situation where they've inherited uh, an environment of low trust, uh, of high distance, uh, they're trying to come in, there's a lot of these role-based challenges, a lot of friction that's going on. What are some ways that somebody can increase trust and decrease the friction in those situations? The leader or the manager in that situation has to, first of all, have the insight that I've got to build relationships with these people who are not used to this. And the way I've seen it done, and we describe a couple of cases like this in, in our book, is a, a guy who took over uh, a large international uh, multi-product corporation as the executive VP. He had four different companies in four different industries. He decided that he had to get to know the executive team of each of those companies. So he allocated a week or so <clears throat> in each case to getting to know the individual people, mostly by making himself more vulnerable, going to these teams and saying, look, I don't know your business the way you do, and yet uh, I need to, to get that knowledge. So educate me and we'll spend time together. Uh, another example uh, of how Mr. Packard, when he opened a plant in, uh, in, in uh, Singapore with an Australian manager, said, how did you learn about the culture of HP? And he said, well, when I first took the job, the first thing they asked me to do is to come to Menlo Park and I spent two entire weeks shadowing Mr. Packard. <laughs> <laughs> so if you look at this from Packard's point of view, that's how you get to know people. You make yourself available. You, uh, you have to be more open yourself, and gradually people will realize that this kind of openness is good, even though in our past, uh, under past managers, it has been discouraged. Our new manager seems to want more of this, so we'll gradually open up. Another thing that we talk about um, in the book is, is the idea of sort of using the check-in process as a way of trying to break down some of those, those role barriers. So if you're uh, you know, going into a meeting, you've got a full agenda, and you know it's going to be hard to get through the agenda, it's kind of hard to uh, to factor in 
something that's a very social process that has nothing to do the, with the agenda, but you may end up with a far more effective meeting if you start out by saying, um, we're going to do a check-in where everybody, we're going to go around the room and, and it's, you, you can't pass. You have to say what's on your mind and let let some of the air out. Let let it let some of this stuff out into the open. If people are feeling resistant, or if people are feeling suspicious, or skeptical, or dubious, um, get it out into the open. It's it's not going to do any good uh, when you all know it's there. It's the elephant in the room. But if it isn't if it isn't spoken, if it isn't aired out, um, you're 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 stuck. So. It sounds like a sort of, you know, simple, easy, maybe easier said than done. But, um, you know, put the agenda aside for a few minutes and try to get every voice in the room heard and see how that improves the dynamic. What we need to get rid of is a manager's attitude that I used to encounter regularly in my class, I would ask, when you were first promoted to a manager, what did that mean to you? And invariably, 100% of the people said, it means I can now tell other people what to do. Yeah. What you cannot do, because you don't know enough, is to tell people what to do in terms of the tasks of the group. So this distinction between managing the task and telling people what to do is what's got to go. And what has to replace it is the, the feeling if I'm the boss now and I know that I'm trying to build teamwork, openness, and trust, I can legislate and ask people to speak up more, to get to know each other, I can demand that they have lunch with me or breakfast and that we get to know each other. So it's, it's a subtle but crucial difference whether the manager manages the content or the process. Now, that's a very important distinction. I like that. And as we're talking about work minus command and control, like we said, there's always going to be some element of hierarchy. Uh, there's always some element of authority. So how do you use that? Do you apply that to the task or to the process? I like that a lot. Ed and Peter, you guys have been great to have on. You've been sharing a lot of stuff with us. Obviously, you could go on for a long time. Where can people go to, to learn more about your writings, about your, your thinking and your books? Um, so a couple places. Uh, one is ocli.org, and that's our Organizational Culture and Leadership Institute. Uh, another place is humbleleadership.com. That's, that's specific to the Humble Leadership book. Um, and then Amazon, because most of Ed's books are on Amazon um, or other online sellers. But uh, we know for a fact that they're available on Amazon and um, uh, easy to get through that channel. Yeah, absolutely. And if you haven't, I mean, if you're if you're into culture, definitely you need to start with with Ed's books. It really gives you the perspective of where where we've come to in, in the discussion about culture. So I definitely recommend that. Well, and Neil, since you mentioned that, um, uh, you, you've invited me to plug something. And <laughs> Go ahead. In July, we're, we're uh, publishing a new, an update to the Corporate Culture Survival Guide, which was a 
um, pretty well received book in the business community that kind of gave people that first sense of what, geez, what is what is this culture stuff all about? We've updated it quite a bit, added a bunch of new stories and some new frameworks. So uh, in July, that book should be available on Amazon. Great, absolutely. Well, thanks a lot for being on the show and sharing all your insights with us. Thank, Thank you. you. This has been the Work Minus Podcast. If you like what we're doing, go to workminus.com where you can see the show notes and a full transcript for every episode. You can also sign up for our newsletter where you'll get the latest progressive ideas about how you can build a better workplace. 